Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Jim Melnick continues our series of messages on the book of Acts. Today, looking at Acts chapter 20 and verse 1 through Acts chapter 22 and verse 21. And now, here's Jim. Good morning, everybody. Just before we get started, the social committee asked me to pass on a message that next Sunday after the bring and share, we have our annual hockey game in the parking lot. So don't just bring your appetite on Sunday, but bring your hockey stick if you have one. And if you don't have one, don't worry about it. We've got plenty of them. But speaking of sports, if you are a sports fan, today's a big day in your life. It's Super Bowl Sunday. It's a huge event in the U.S. And in honor of all of those sports fans out there, I'm going to start with a story. A story about a young man who took his girlfriend to her first ever football game. She knew nothing about uh, the sport of football, but she was eager to learn. And her boyfriend explained everything as they went through the game, from the opening coin toss to the plays, the penalties, the scoring. And after the game was over, he asked her, so what do you think? And she replied, Oh, I thought it was wonderful. It's very exciting. But there's something I just don't understand. And he said, well, what's that? She said, well, all throughout the game, why did they keep fighting over that coin they used in the coin toss? And perplexed, the young man said, I don't understand what you mean. And she said, yeah, all throughout the game, everybody kept yelling, get the quarterback, get the quarterback. <laughs> Well, there is a quarterback in the NFL who just recently announced his retirement at the end of this regular season. Tom Brady is perhaps one of the most well-known NFL athletes that there is right now. And in fact, a lot of people proclaim him as being the greatest quarterback of all time. And he certainly has a lot of accolades and accomplishments to his name. He's won the Grey Cup, or sorry, the uh, Super Bowl. Or maybe he's won the Grey Cup too, I don't know. But he's won the Super Bowl seven times now, and he has a lot of records to his name. But I can't help but wonder, 2,000 years from now, will anybody even remember the name Tom Brady, let alone all of his accomplishments? Well, there is a name that for 2,000 years has not only been remembered around the world, but to this day, 2,000 years later, that name still changes people's lives. And of course, that name is Jesus Christ. And today we continue to study the life of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. And we're going to look at how Paul took that name of Jesus Christ across the Roman Empire, changing lives and in the process seeing his own transformation from one of persecutor of Christ to proclaimer of Christ. And we're going to be looking at two and a half chapters this morning, chapters 20, 21, and the first half of chapter 22. And within those chapters, Paul is on the move again. On this, his third recorded missionary journey. Paul packs his carry-on bag and sets off along the north shore of the Aegean Sea, which is part of the Mediterranean Sea. Paul travels along the western coast of modern-day Turkey, and that name is certainly in everybody's thoughts and prayers uh, in these past few days. And then he goes on into what in Paul's day was known as Macedonia, which is part of modern-day Greece. Here, Paul spends three months and as he was preparing to leave, he gets wind of another group of Jews that had organized a plot against him. 
Whether it was Jews that saw Paul as a threat to their customs or local residents of a town who saw their way of life and uh, way of making money threatened, Paul always seemed to create a stir wherever he went. In order to avoid the danger posed to him, Paul decided to retrace his steps along the north shore of the Aegean Sea. And we can see at this point that Luke rejoins the group, as it says in verse 6 of chapter 20, but we sailed from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. And it's in Troas that we come across an interesting account of Paul and something that has plagued preachers for thousands of years. And we can read about that in Acts chapter 20, verses 7 to 12, which reads, On the first day of the week we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people. And because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third-story window and, and was picked up for dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, put his arms around him, said, don't be alarmed. He said, he's alive. Then he went upstairs again, broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Now, it's no wonder that Eutychus succumbed to falling asleep as Paul spoke late into the night. Not only would have been speaking past what it would have been people's normal bedtime at that point in their lives, but the room was filled with people and with burning lamps that would have been using up the oxygen. Fortunately, we'll never have that problem here at BFA. Not that nobody will ever fall asleep during a sermon. I mean, every once in a while I'm up here and I see the bobbleheads starting to come out. But that's okay, because I know we'll never have to worry about anybody falling off falling out of a third-story window to their death. I mean, our windows are barely six inches off the ground. <laughs> the most you'll ever have to worry about if you fall asleep is perhaps falling off your chair. But I wonder if Luke included this incident because he was a doctor and he would have obviously been very interested in the miraculous healing of Eutychus. Luke would certainly have been knowledgeable as a doctor to attest to his death and subsequent resurrection. This incident's an example of the gift of healing that God had granted to apostles like Paul and others as they traveled from town to town proclaiming the gospel message. Well, after Paul's preaching marathon, he sends his traveling companions on ahead by ship to Asus, where Paul joined them, and together they set sail for Mytilene and then Chios and Samos, and eventually they came to Miletus. Whereas it says in verse 16 of chapter 20, Paul decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. While in Miletus, Paul did send for the elders of the church from Ephesus, where he reminded them of his dedication to them while he was with them in Ephesus. Paul then went on to emphasize that while he was with them, he preached without hesitation publicly and from house to house, the need to turn to God into, in repentance and to have a faith in Jesus Christ. And now let's pick up Paul's address to these Ephesian elders. Acts chapter 20, verses 22 to 38 is the account of that encounter. And it reads, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, 
I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that among you, now I, now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourself and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will rise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I've not coveted anyone's gold or silver or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them the most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Do you get the sense that Paul was like a father figure to these young churches? Paul cared very deeply for these churches. He helped start. But he also recognized that even though he helped start these churches like the one in Ephesus, none of them belonged to Paul. In his charge to the elders, Paul instructed them to keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Paul acknowledges that the church belonged to God and that God paid a very high price for it. Paul reminded the elders that in order to protect the health of the local church, in order to do that, they first needed to look after their own spiritual health. Think of it like those pre-flight briefings you get before the airplane takes off. That is, if you pay attention to them. When the flight attendants get to the instructions of what to do if the oxygen masks suddenly fall from the ceiling and dangle in front of you, and they tell you to give yours a pull and put it on your face first before you try and help anybody else, they mean it. Commercial jets routinely cruise at around 35,000 feet. And at that altitude, you only have at the most 30 seconds of useful consciousness before you can no longer even help yourself, let alone somebody else, if the plane was to suddenly depressurize. Take care of yourself, Paul warned the elders, so you can take care of the flock that God is entrusting to you. This advice is not only important for elders, but for anyone, for anyone who's involved in somebody else's life, whether it be a spouse, a parent, a sibling, a friend. If you don't look after your own spiritual health, it will be hard to be a journeymate with anybody else. Now, I don't believe that Paul was instructing the elders that they needed to be perfect in their doctrine and interpretation of it when he instructed the elders to keep watch over yourselves. That's impossible. Nobody gets it right all the time. Oh, I've come across people who have all the answers. But I've never come across anybody who has all the correct answers. 
But Paul was warning the elders to guard themselves so that they are not deceived. Paul goes on to express how there will come others after him whom he described as savage wolves. Others will come perhaps even from within, whose desires will be to draw disciples towards themselves. In this particular case, Paul is warning against those who will come after him, looking to create a following, a following after a specific person rather than a following of Jesus Christ. And to drive that point home, Paul reminded the elders how when he was with them, he did not covet any of their wealth, but he cared for his own needs and the needs of his companions. Paul was emphasizing through his own examples that part of the elders' responsibility will be to support the weaker of those among them. It's here that Paul recounts one of the sayings of Jesus that is not found in any of the Gospels. In Jesus' own words, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Well, after an emotional farewell, Paul and his companions set sail for the coast of modern-day Israel and eventually on to Jerusalem. Along the way, Paul was warned by others through the Holy Spirit of the dangers that he would face in Jerusalem. One of the more well-known warnings was those from a prophet by the name of Agabus in Caesarea. And we can, we can read about that in Acts chapter 21, verses 10 to 14, which reads, After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the, owners of, the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. From Caesarea, Paul traveled the remaining 100 kilometers or so to Jerusalem. And upon arriving, Paul met with James, the half-brother of Jesus, and the elders of the church there. After giving his report of all that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry, the Jerusalem leaders warned Paul of some false rumors that were being spread about him. Apparently, some of the local Jews were insinuating that Paul was trying to turn Jews living among the Gentiles away from the customs that Moses had taught specifically the custom of circumcision. Now, this may stem back to what Luke recorded in chapter 15, when some Jewish believers came to Antioch and tried to teach that unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. This gave rise to the first recorded council in Jerusalem and the compromise that was proposed by James to appease both the Jewish and the Gentile Christians without straying from the gospel message. The church leaders came up with an idea to try and stamp out these rumors that had preceded Paul's arrival in Jerusalem. We can pick that up in verse 22 of chapter 21. And these are the elders speaking to Paul. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, joining their purification rites and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved then everybody will know that there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision. 
that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. Paul constantly taught that salvation was a gift from God. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You certainly don't deserve it. Because of God's grace towards his creation, that's us. We simply have to believe in his son, Jesus Christ, and the message he came to proclaim in salvation is assured. Though the Mosaic customs could not save, Paul and the others never taught that they were of no value and should be abandoned outright. Although the plan was solid that the leaders proposed, because of a misunderstanding, Paul was accused of bringing a Gentile into the area of the temple that was forbidden to non-Jewish people. That threw everyone into an uproar. Paul must have thought, here we go again. While the Jewish mob was trying to kill Paul, the commander of the Roman garrison stationed nearby had to rescue Paul by arresting him. Paul tried to speak to the crowd and to calm them by giving them his testimony. And though the crowd did quieten down and listen for a while, eventually they were worked up again into a frenzy. And the Roman soldiers had to save Paul's life by taking him into the barracks. Well, that's a real quick flyby of these two and a half chapters. And there's a number of directions that one can go to dig deeper into them. I'd like to spend some time this morning on a common theme that's been present not only within these chapters, but throughout the entire book of Acts. I've read that the book of Acts could quite easily be titled The Acts of the Holy Spirit. Throughout this account of the early church, we see the Holy Spirit working and being present as the church was formed and made its way across the known world at that time. Right at the beginning, the Holy Spirit made his presence known as Pentecost. Throughout the book, we see how God's Spirit instructed, came upon and filled Christ's followers, was a part of baptism, enabled the speaking in tongues, he spoke through people, he confirmed people's actions, and he stopped people's actions when warranted. In particular, in these chapters 20 and 21, we have several examples of the Holy Spirit working in and directing Christians' lives. Examples such as those found in Acts 20, verses 22 to 23, and this is Paul speaking again. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. As well, when Paul was speaking to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 28, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. And others who warned Paul, such as in Acts 21, verse 4, finding the disciples there, we stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And as well from Agabus in Acts 21:11, coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and hand him over to the Gentiles. In these verses, we see the Holy Spirit compelling and warning Paul. Paul acknowledging that the Holy Spirit was making certain Christians in Antioch elders and shepherds of the local church. Also through the Holy Spirit, people were warning Paul of the dangers that he would face in Jerusalem. The early Christians seemed to have no problem sensing God's Spirit working in their lives. Over and over they gave credit to God's Spirit acting in and through them. This was not an empty expression 
being spoken to emphasize a thought like you hear so many people today when they say, OMG. We've all heard people use that expression. But the people saying it have no intention of giving credit or thought to God with what they are about to say. It's merely an attention-getting phrase. But here in Acts, when the Spirit is mentioned, it's because He is present and He's working through people. In preparing for this message, I started thinking, always a good idea when you're preparing a sermon. But I started thinking, does the Holy Spirit work the same way today in the lives of Christians as He did 2,000 years ago? I don't know if you've ever given any thought to that. Have you ever felt yourself compelled by the Holy Spirit to do something or to say something? Have you ever felt God's Spirit enlightening you some way or giving you instruction or understanding? Have you ever felt the Holy Spirit holding you back from doing something or moving in a certain direction? Well, how do you know it's God's Spirit working in you and not your own spirit? Luke recorded in Acts over and over how the early Christians received the Holy Spirit when they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Sometimes the indwelling of the Spirit occurred quickly. Sometimes it took the intervention of the apostles for that to happen. Though Christians received God's Spirit, Luke doesn't record every Christian being led by God's Spirit as experienced in some of these verses that we just read about. And even for some of these people who were led by the Spirit, it's not recorded in Acts that this was an occurrence that went on in that particular person over and over and over again. Sometimes it happened once and we never hear about it happening again in that person's particular life. So how can you know it's God's Spirit and not your own at work within you? Well, I can't answer that question specifically for everyone, but there are some principles that you can apply in the quest towards that answer. Firstly, if the direction or leading that you are feeling is out of sync with God's character, then it's not the Holy Spirit speaking to you. As part of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit cannot act contrary to God's character because it would mean he would have to be acting out of his own character. And the Bible teaches that God is always true to his character. Secondly, if what you hear or the direction that you feel that you are being led is true to God's word, that's taught in the Bible, then that's a good sign that it could very well be the Holy Spirit speaking to you or working through you. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 speaks of the understanding of God's word coming through the Holy Spirit. If you feel led in a direction that does not fit with what the Bible teaches, then it's more likely your own spirit trying to justify your actions rather than the Holy Spirit leading you. Thirdly, Although God's Spirit is not restricted to speaking to us only through prayer, it will often be through prayer that we can make that connection and sense the Spirit's leading in our life. The Bible teaches that we are created in God's image. And as such, we ourselves have a Spirit because the Bible says God is Spirit. And it's through our Spirit that we can connect with God. Romans 8 speaks of how God's Spirit will intercede on our behalf when we don't know what to pray. And if you've ever had a sense of peace about a situation when you can't even find the words to pray about it, it's most likely the Holy Spirit working in your life. You may sense the Spirit's leading in your life and have peace about a direction, even though it's completely opposite to the direction that you envisioned. 
Sometimes God's Spirit will speak to you in a quiet voice that only you can hear. An audible voice with inside of you that only you hear when you yourself are quiet and still and ready to listen. That voice will be in character with God. It will remain true to God's Word. I believe God still speaks to His children through the Holy Spirit today. I'd love to hear some of your stories about that happening, and more specifically, why you felt it was the Holy Spirit speaking to you or working through you. One of the things that applies to all instances of God's Holy Spirit working through people is that first people believed in the message brought to them of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was after accepting by faith that Jesus is God's Son and receiving Him with a repentant heart that the Holy Spirit takes up residence within not only the early Christians, in the book of Acts, and indwells within them, but does the same with us today. It was then that we read about examples of Christians being filled with the Holy Spirit and being led by Him. Before you can be used by God's Spirit, you must first become one of His children. Now, I've heard stories about people who have felt God's Spirit working on their lives before they became a Christian, and I don't deny that. But today I'm talking about the Holy Spirit working through a Christian's life. Well, today we've wrapped up Paul's third missionary journey, as recorded by Luke in the book of Acts. Paul has made it to Jerusalem, and once again he's found himself in a tight spot. Paul's missionary journeys read like a cliffhanger. Perhaps you're old enough to remember some of the serial TV adventure shows that at the end of each episode leaves the hero stranded in some tight spot, and you have to tune in next week to the next episode to find out how he rescued himself from that spot. Well, a couple of character traits that Paul exhibits throughout his travels and his tight spots are persistence and endurance. Persistence and endurance were definitely needed by Paul to continue the race that Christ started him on when he stopped him in his tracks on that road to Damascus. For approximately 20 years, Paul traveled the known world spreading the gospel message of Jesus Christ and helping start churches within the Roman Empire. Well, I'd like to finish today with a modern-day example of patience and persistence. Cliff Young was an Australian farmer who became a most unlikely contestant in a marathon, and not just any marathon, but an ultra-marathon. In 1983, Cliff Young showed up to enter an endurance marathon from Sydney to Melbourne in Australia, a distance of 875 kilometers. To put that in perspective, I googled the distance by road from Timmins to London and Southern Ontario. That's only 848 kilometers. I can't imagine running from here to Matheson, let alone turning the corner in Matheson and continuing on to London, and then going for another 27 kilometers past London. These types of marathons were run by young athletes who were professional runners with sponsors to provide them with the best training and the best gear. When Cliff Young approached the starting line, this 61-year-old farmer was wearing a baseball cap with a flap on the back to protect his neck from the sun. He was wearing a baggy shirt, and a pair of work pants with a few holes in them for ventilation, and his athletic footwear was a pair of work shoes. People wondered if this was a joke. This was no 5K run the 61-year-old farmer was lining up for. 
When the starting gun sounded, as expected, Cliff Young was left to himself in last place. People were not only wondering if he could finish this race, but if in fact he would injure himself because of his unorthodox shuffle as he ran. A race at this length usually would take between five and six days to complete with the athletes running for up to 18 hours a day and then taking a six-hour rest period at the end of each day. Nobody bothered to mention this to Cliff Young. Apparently, he ran 22 hours a day and only took a two-hour rest at the end of each day. By the fifth day, Cliff Young not only caught up to the pack, but he took the lead and finished in first place. And not only did he finish in first place, but he set a new record for a race of this distance. Cliff Young finished this race in five days, 15 hours, and four minutes. A full 10 hours ahead of the second place finisher behind him. You can't make this stuff up. When asked how he was able to endure the race and to finish in first place, Cliff Young explained how he grew up on a sheep farm and when storms would threaten, it would be his job to go out and round up the sheep and herd them back to the ranch. The family farm had 2,000 sheep on 2,000 acres of land. The family was too poor to afford a four-wheel drive vehicle or even a horse, so Cliff Young set out on foot to do this himself. And he told the interviewer, it would normally take me two or three days to round up all the sheep, so I'd just be running an extra couple of days. <laughs> well, it gets better. After the race, Cliff Young was awarded the trophy and a check for $10,000. He didn't know there was a monetary prize that went with this race. Cliff Young divided up the $10,000 amongst the other runners, keeping none for himself. And he told people, I just couldn't keep the money because those guys worked just as hard as I did. Well, I wonder if Cliff Young knew about the saying of Jesus that Paul quoted, it's more blessed to give than to receive. The Apostle Paul was in an endurance race and it wasn't over. Paul had just completed the third leg of his race and perhaps his toughest leg was just in front of him. In the days to come, Paul will write his second letter to Timothy in which he will say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only for me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. The next few weeks, we'll be looking at the final leg of Paul's journey. But for today, I'll leave you with a cliffhanger of Paul being held in Roman barracks. And you'll have to tune in next week to see how our intrepid hero rescues himself. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time that we've had together this morning, for the opportunity to sing our praises to you, offer up our praises and our worship to you in prayer. We thank you for your word that we can open it and read it and have it dwell within us just as your Holy Spirit does. Father, be with us as we go out this week that we too would be proclaimers of Christ, that we too would share that gospel message with anyone who will listen. Pray that you would bring us all back safely again next time we meet and that we would all be one step closer to you in our love and our adoration for you. I pray for these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church. 
where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area, or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.